Hello, 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 and welcome to the 12th episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we have to serve you the grains of capitalism. Now, as of the 29th of June, 2017, Apple's massively popular iPhone turns 10, with many fans of the brand looking forward to what new features might be introduced with the latest model, the iPhone 8, I thought it would be interesting to take stock at what kind of impact the iPhone has made in the space of 10 years. After all, back when the first iPhone was announced back in January of 2007, features such as a 2 megapixel camera, portable web browsers, or touchscreen capabilities were novel and exciting. These days, the upcoming iPhone 8 is expected to have a new OLED display, a 3D sensor for facial recognition, and wireless charging. And while the features are a testament to the innovation and investment put into the iPhone, they also tell a compelling economic story. For instance, one reason why the iPhone has to constantly keep improving itself with new features is due to the intense competition it faces in the smartphone space, particularly from Samsung's Galaxy Phone series. Also, consider the rise of one of Apple's core suppliers, Foxconn Technology Group, which has become the world's largest contract electronics manufacturer and now employs over 1 million workers, certainly in due part to the iPhone. Lastly, Notice how the rise of smartphones provided the platform for the rise of smartphone applications, which could be considered an industry in itself, employing hundreds of thousands worldwide, while also generating billions in revenue. Today's episode, therefore, will be a tale of some of these economic stories, from the micro-perspective of how Apple, the company, has changed, to a macro-look on the economies and industries that have been affected, Apple's success will be a striking case example of the interconnectedness of the global market, the early days of the digital revolution, and of the magic of capitalism. Let's begin. Now, we start with the development of Apple and the iPhone's impact on the company. So thanks to the article, The iPhone Decade in 12 Charts, provided by the Wall Street Journal graphics team, we can see that in 2006, or you know, one year before the iPhone was released, Apple's top sellers then were the iPod, which made up 39.7% of revenue, and the Mac, which took up 38.2% of revenue. The success of the iPhone, however, changed that distribution dramatically. By 2012, the iPhone would account for more than half of Apple's revenue, or 51.4%, and by the year 2016, a full 10 years since 2006, the iPhone made up about two-thirds of Apple's revenue at 63.4%. Now, it has done this on the back of being one of the best consumer products of all time. With about 1.3 billion units of the iPhone sold, and more than 800 billion in revenue generated in global sales far outpacing other consumer goods such as the Barbie doll, Zippo lighters, or you know, even the Rubik's Cube. Further, what is more spectacular is the financial growth of Apple since the launch of the iPhone. In the span of 2006 to 2016, sales grew from 19.32 billion to 215.64 billion, a multiple of more than 11 times. 
profit grew from 1.99 billion to 45.69 billion, a multiple of almost 23 times, and cash holdings grew from 6.39 billion to 237.59 billion, a multiple of more than 37 times. Is it any any wonder that Apple today is the most valuable publicly traded company in the world with a market cap nearing a staggering 800 billion dollars? To put the size of Apple's market cap into perspective, 800 billion is greater than the GDP of the Netherlands for 2016, which stood at 771 billion, or more than 2.5 times greater than the 2006 Singapore GDP, which stood at 296 billion. Now, one big reason behind Apple's resounding success with the iPhone was constant innovation. From the early days of adding video capabilities or high-speed internet to the later days of introducing the voice assistant Siri or 3D Touch technology, Apple prioritized finding better and better ways to make their iPhone, a strategy that has benefited millions of users around the world as well as Apple themselves. This is reflected in the significant jump of research and development spending within the company. Where in 2006, Apple would spend, you know, in the region of 0.71 billion on R&D costs, the company would go on to spend a whopping 10.04 billion on R&D in 2016, a more than 14 times increase. This then is truly a testament to the capitalist system. To all those critics who say that capitalism does not care about consumers or, you know, only seeks profits for its bosses, then consider all the billions that Apple has spent in research and development. If the top management of Apple were truly evil and uncaring, why would they even bother putting, you know, you know putting a single cent into R&D when they, when they already had a successful product with the original iPhone? Why not just keep all the profits for themselves? Why is it that we are now able to enjoy a bevy of new features which just keep getting better and better each year? The end result, by the way, of the billions invested by Apple and of the time and labor put in by their R&D team. To emphasize the mechanics of capitalism and to shed light on Apple's approach to designing products, here is Steve Jobs speaking at the D8 conference in 2010. And uh, if the market tells us we're making the wrong choices, we listen to the market. We're just, we're just people running this company. We're trying to make great products for people. And so we're, we have the, at least the courage of our convictions to say, we don't think this is part of what makes a great product. We're going to leave it out. Some people are going to not like that. They're going to call us names. It's not going to be in certain companies' vested interests that we do that, but we're going to take the heat because we want to make the best product in the world for customers. And we're going to instead focus our energy on these technologies, which we think are in their ascendancy and we think are going to be the right technologies for customers. And you know what? They're paying us to make those choices. That's what a lot of customers pay us to do, is to try to make the best products we can. And if we succeed, they'll buy them. And if we don't, they won't. And it'll all work itself out. However, if we want to be comprehensive in detailing the pursuit of innovation within Apple, we would be remiss if we did not mention the role that external competition played. Back when Apple first released the iPhone, it was revolutionary, a breakthrough in consumer products, and one that outmatched nearly everything the market had to offer at the time, which included the likes of Nokia, Motorola, or the Blackberry. These days, while Apple introduced the smartphone market, they are no longer the kings of it. 
According to a smartphone vendor market share report for the first quarter of 2017 by the market research firm IDC, Samsung has the highest global market share with roughly 23.3%, while Apple trails in second at 14.7%. Not to be forgotten though, is the stiff competition coming from China, where Huawei, Oppo, and Vivo own 10%, 7.5%, and 5.5% respectively. With the more complete picture of innovation and competition now, it's easier to understand the struggle and challenge behind the veneer of phenomenal success. As Trip Mickle writes in his Wall Street Journal article, the iPhone's success has, quote, also created enormous challenges for Apple, raising the bar for innovation and turning a company that thrived on its self-image as scrappy underdog into an industry leader, with a workforce more than six times what it was, end quote. Imagine then the pressures that the Apple executives had to go through each day. With a product that accounted for two-thirds of its sales competing in the very saturated smartphone market, any misstep for the iPhone could mean billions in lost revenue. I mean, such was the case for Apple's biggest competitor Samsung and their ill-fated Galaxy Note 7 series, which reportedly had faulty batteries that led some of its devices to catch fire or explode. This resulted in the biggest product recall in the company's history, and according to an article in NBC News, quote, drove a company-wide 30% collapse in operating profit during the July to September quarter, compared with the same period last year, end quote. Now, underlying the expectations of their hit product would be the pressure to create new ones. Arguably, this issue of new product innovation is doubly difficult when new products such as the Apple Watch, or the AirPod headphones struggle to live up to the iPhone's ridiculous expectations. As Patrick Moorhead, a technology analyst with more insights and strategy writes, the iPhone was so revolutionary, it raised expectations that the company would introduce radical new products regularly. And he added with the point, quote, that's what I call the leadership burden, end quote. Therefore, to summarize the iPhone's economic impact on Apple, it would be easy to say that it has been wildly positive for the company and its stockholders, not to mention that it has done so by benefiting millions of consumers worldwide who gain access to what was a revolutionary consumer product at the time. However, we should not forget the excruciating amount of effort and investment behind the scenes that worked tirelessly to produce iPhone after iPhone, each with new and improved features to meet the market's demands and expectations. We now turn from the economic impact of the iPhone on Apple to that of several periphery industries surrounding it. And one of the more immediately apparent changes can be seen in the music industry if we recall that back in 2006, the iPod commanded the majority of Apple sales. This is not too surprising since back in 2006, we didn't have online streaming music services such as Spotify, nor did we have the technology to play them on the go since, you know, the iPhone or smartphones weren't yet invented. As such, and in response to the bulky and less practical digital Walkman of the 1990s, Portable music players or MPT players such as the iPod or the Zune were the more convenient way of carrying and listening to music on the go. The launch of the iPhone, however, marked the beginning of the iPod's irrelevance. With better networks to access a whole gamut of services on your phone, the iPod looked more and more like a one-trick pony. And eventually, in 2014, Apple discontinued production of the iPod Classic. Now, it wasn't like consumers hated the product. I mean, many, including myself, have fond memories of always bringing my iPod whenever I left the house. 
But with the development of better network speeds and online music streaming services, the individual has access to a library of music multitudes greater than the iPod ever could. This despite the iPod boasting an impressive 160GB memory. Best of all, you could get it at only a tiny fraction of the cost of legally owning all the music you could store in your iPod. Now, the macro impact on the music industry, however, would have to be to shake up the record labels and the artists. As the smartphone provided the platform for streaming services such as Spotify or Apple Music to blossom, record labels grew less reliant on the sales of CDs or digital downloads and more on the revenue it gets from streaming. In fact, as an Insider UK article points out, Digital revenues at Warner Music Group accounted for more than half of its total revenues in 2017. To add to that, Chief Executive Steve Cooper even points out how streaming revenue is now double that of physical sales and triple that of downloads. If you look at it economically, the streaming model makes a lot more sense. You know, for streaming companies, they don't have to manufacture physical CDs and thus save up on inventory and production costs. In place, they enter royalty or licensing contracts that they pay the artists for the number of stream plays. And, you know, but, but, but this brings a question, right? So how does the streaming company actually generate income? Well, for free streaming, this is done through advertising, which can be inserted between songs or posted on the website itself or on, or on you know, different places like the bars on the app or on the bottom. However, for paid streaming, this is done through a subscription model whereby listeners pay a monthly a monthly fee in exchange for access to a giant online music library. Now, the beauty of this model is that it makes listening to music much, much cheaper than ever before. And perhaps this is why, then, millions and millions of people now subscribe to music streaming services and continue to do so, and, and, and the number keeps increasing each year. And from the realm of music, we now turn to the camera industry, where the, indus- where, where the introduction of the iPhone has not been as favorable. In fact, from data provided by the Camera and Imaging Products Association, the number of global camera shipments has fallen dramatically since its peak of 121 million in 2010 to just 24 million in 2016. From a consumer standpoint, the reason is pretty clear. Similar to how the MP3 players died out, the smartphone presents itself as a more dynamic camera than digital cameras ever were by itself. And while in the early days on the iPhone, digital cameras could brag about having significantly better photo quality and higher megapixel counts, that is not so true for today's smartphones, where Samsung's Galaxy S8 and S8 Plus have impressive 12 megapixel cameras and multi-frame imaging processing for better performance in low light and HDR photography. Now throw in image effects and filters from various photo editing apps, and the user is now equipped to post landscapes and selfies in amazing quality. Due to this disruption to the camera industry, several notable uh, companies have been forced to reshuffle their business, the most prominent casualty being Eastman Kodak, who declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2012. However, this does not mean that the digital camera companies became, became irrelevant. After all, for commercial purposes, professional photographers still rely on digital cameras and photo editing software such as Photoshop to produce their work. Where the introduction of the iPhone really hurt the camera industry is at the mass market consumers, where the smartphone and its suite of apps 
help enable individuals with no clue about photography or photo editing to capture their precious moments in life. This is perhaps best reflected in the meteoric rise of the photo app Instagram, where the company reports that its user base has grown to a staggering 700 million users since founding in 2010. Now, speaking of Instagram, one interesting corollary was how attractive these large user bases were to marketers. As notable individuals on Instagram guarded thousands and thousands of followers, they became the ideal targets for sponsors looking to reach out to, you know, a generally younger, maybe more tech-savvy demographic. This gave rise to the niche industry of influencers, some of whom command ridiculous amounts for a single sponsored post. For example, in her article on Forbes, Claire O'Connor points out how Rachel Brathen, the, quote, most sought after yogi, end quote, can fetch upwards of $25,000 per post. On a more general basis, however, this reflected the advertiser's awareness of the growing mobile audience. As a consumer study by eMarketer finds, the time spent per adult user each day on mobile devices has increased significantly. In 2008, adults spent just on average, you know, 0.3 hours a day on mobile phones, while in 2015, this jumped to 2.8 hours per day. Further, data by the market research firm Comscore finds that the number of global mobile users have overtaken desktop users since 2013, where it now stands at close to 2 billion users. As a result, the advertisers followed suit. As more and more people spend time on their mobile phones instead of reading newspapers or magazines, so has ad dollars flocked towards mobile rather than print. Echoing this is the fact that, according to eMarketer, total mobile ad spending in the US overtook print ad dollars for the first time in 2015, signaling a fundamental shift within the advertising industry. But perhaps underlying all these economic impacts on the music, camera, or advertising industries is the smartphone's introduction of an entirely new ecosystem based on mobile applications. While the iPhone itself already packed incredible functionality that gave users access to the likes of email, calendar, maps, and calculators, one of the biggest draws to owning a smartphone is the incredibly exhaustive list of applications that can be installed on the phone. You know, from apps such as mobile banking to food delivery to weather, applications supplement the smartphone in a way that had never been done before and gave birth to a whole new generation of coders and programmers as well as successful billion-dollar industries based on the mobile platform. In fact, according to the audience measurement firm Virto Analytics, App stores today offer roughly 3.5 million to 3.6 million choices. And if you think that with apps, the smartphone is at the peak of its powers, then the quote, super app, quote, WeChat is on another level altogether. The reason why WeChat is known as a super app is that through it, you have access to a multitude of features such as messaging, video gaming, hailing a taxi, sending money, or ordering food. In effect, it consolidates the essential features of the 3 million plus applications available into a single app. And what it gets for this consolation is much greater user engagement and a much, much more active user base, 
which according to the website Statista, has reached 938 million unique accounts as of the first quarter of 2017. What's even more surprising is the way in which WeChat has changed payment habits of consumers. While a report by the firm Walk the Cat states that sending money through digital red envelopes is still the most popular form of payment function used, it notes that, quote, users are starting to use WeChat payment for larger transactions, end quote. This point is supplemented by an article on the website DMB Shanghai that says how, quote, the phenomenon is spreading so fast that it's affecting offline shopping. People don't need cash anymore. As long as WeChat payment solution is integrated in a shop, they can just scan a QR code and pay directly through the app, end quote. Indeed, I was thoroughly taken aback during my last visit to China, where I noticed the ubiquity of WeChat and its payment ability. With the aid of a QR code and a linked bank account, I could rent bicycles, purchase vegetables from the local wet market, or even make donations at the temple. So to put it simply then, the impact on the iPhone on its periphery industries, from disrupting the music industry to introducing a whole suite of apps to changing consumer payment patterns, has been nothing short of remarkable. Now, lastly, before I delve into the final economic impact that, I, that I'm going to be covering today, I would like to share a story about how the first iPhone was released. As Charles Duhigg and Keith Bradshaw tell in their New York Times article titled How US Lost Out on iPhone Work, there was a time back in 2007, with just over a month left before the first iPhone was to be commercially released, when Steve Jobs called a meeting with a handful of his key officers to make a complaint. As the officers entered Jobs' office, he held out a prototype of the iPhone which he had been carrying around for weeks, dangling it so everyone could see the many scratches on its plastic screen. Jobs pointed out that people will carry the phone in their pockets where they will also keep their keys. He emphasized, quote, I won't sell a product that gets scratched. I want a glass screen and I want it perfect in six weeks, end quote. As a former executive recalled about the incident, there was only one place where they could fix this last-minute design problem, China. And as the new glass screens began arriving at the assembly plant near, near midnight, a foreman woke up 8,000 workers inside the company dormitories. Each assembly line worker was given a biscuit and a cup of tea, guided to a workstation, and within half an hour started a 12-hour shift fitting you know, glass screens into beveled frames. Within the space of 96 hours, the plant was producing over 10,000 iPhones a day. Now, this story is remarkable as it presents a behind-the-scenes look into the process of iPhone assembly, from the top-level decisions to the actual assembly work. On this point, I would like to emphasize the economic impact the iPhone has had on the lives of the assembly line workers. While many would know China in the early 90s and 2000s as the factory of the world for low-value products such as plastic toys and clothes, leaders in Beijing, and especially the company Foxconn, who contracts these uh, assembly line workers, saw an opportunity with the iPhone to move factories up the value chain. This move would prove to be significant. With the global demand for iPhones increasing rapidly, so did the demand for low-skilled assembly line jobs in China. Over time, the factories will provide work for hundreds of thousands of Chinese citizens, many of whom come from rural villages so that they can find an escape from a life of poverty. As Eva To highlights in her Wall Street Journal 
article titled How the iPhone Built a City in China, the Foxconn workers typically earn about 1,900 yuan or about $278 in USD in quiet months to more than 4,000 yuan with overtime during busy periods. Now, while this income isn't high by most standards in developed economies, Tho points out that many are better off than they were as rural villagers doing farm work. Furthermore, Tho's article also details the economic transformation of an industrial town on the edge of the city of Zhengzhou, where Foxconn decided to build a factory there in 2010 to assemble iPhones. Within a year, Foxconn chairman Terry Goh said that the iPhone factory had 100,000 workers, and that as of 2017, that number had grown to 250,000. It is of little wonder, then, that the little town would later become known as the iPhone city. What is also fascinating is the economic spillover from Foxconn's decision to build a factory in Zhengzhou. As Tho points out in her article, where the iPhone factory brought in hundreds of thousands of workers from neighboring cities and provinces, an economic ecosystem would sprout to cater to their needs, with shopping malls, restaurants, and even karaoke parlors popping up. Summarizing the direct and indirect economic impact of Foxconn's entry into Zhengzhou are some remarkable data provided by the financial research firm WinInfo. In the six-year period from 2010 to 2016, Win reports that Zhengzhou's GDP nearly doubled from roughly 60 billion in 2010 to roughly 120 billion in 2016. Zhengzhou's population has also increased, though not as uh, as, uh, significantly, as the iPhone city introduced more than 1 million people in 2010. The most amazing statistic, however, is the explosion of total exports from Zhengzhou since Foxconn's entry. From a total export figure of about $1 billion in 2010 to a whopping $35 billion in 2016. But just as Duhigg and Bratcher's article talk about the politics and not just the economics of the iPhone, the analysis of iPhone City would not be complete without understanding the contribution of political leaders in Zhengzhou. Specifically, Tho highlights a statement by Foxconn regarding the decision to open a plant in Zhengzhou, which said that, quote, Zhengzhou's pro-business policies and the investment the government continues to make to build strong infrastructure to support manufacturing make the province an attractive location for our operations, end quote. Indeed, this point tends to get understated in the media. Whenever a big firm decides to invest and expand operations in a different location, there are many factors that go into consideration. Among these include the quality and quantity of the labor available, the state of infrastructure, and lastly, what the ease of doing business is in that location. Consider then the efforts that Zhengzhou officials took to attract Foxconn to their city. You know, they, they managed to secure a national-level special trade zone for their province. They managed to redirect Henan resources towards infrastructure spending to support iPhone City, and even facilitated Foxconn in lending state-owned coal company workers when, uh, when Foxconn were shorthanded. To be sure, it's not like Foxconn didn't do anything when they set up iPhone City. As the company statement points out that, quote, while the government has provided assistance in helping us with our recruitment requirements, the costs associated with hiring and training new workers are all covered by Foxconn, end quote. However, an analysis of the economic impact of the assembly line workers cannot be complete without addressing some of its common criticisms. 
Chief among these are the alleged exploitation of these workers. Critics tend to point out that the that it is egregious for you know Apple or Foxconn or Samsung to come to a developing country like China or Africa or Indonesia and set up factories where they pay low wages for long hours and poor working conditions. Though supplements this point in her article by highlighting how China's shift up the manufacturing value chain also led to quote complaints from some workers of repetitive labor, restrictive work rules, and crowded living conditions in company housing. End quote. Furthermore, is an iPhone city too dependent on the iPhone for survival? What will happen, you know, to the to the hundreds of thousands of workers living there, or to the, the or to the economic ecosystem in iPhone city? when iPhone sales begin to falter and demand dries up. Now, in addressing these criticisms, I think that Dr. Yaron Brook, President and Executive Director of the Ayn Rand Institute, says it best in his answer to the question, don't Western companies hurt poor workers in developing nations by paying them too little? Here's the clip. Um, you sit here in Europe, in your cushy middle-class chairs. <laughs> I'm serious about this. And you want to judge the African, or let's take the Chinese, because that's why, you know, in Apple or the Indonesian uh, so-called sweatshop or whatever. And you want to tell me that two bucks a day is not a dramatic improvement in their life? It is. And there's no way for them to get to the point to be as rich as you are unless they go through that phase. And if you deny them the ability to make two bucks a day, by charging four, by insisting the companies pay four, and therefore they withdraw completely from the market. Because you know what? I'm not paying 600 bucks for this. I'll pay 300. And if I stop buying this, who suffers? That Chinese kid who's, who's right now making whatever, three bucks a day or whatever, right? And he, his alternative is to go back to the farm. And you know what they did in the farms? 40 years ago when the Chinese were all producing agriculture, they were dying of starvation. 40 to 60 million Chinese died of starvation under Mao. Suddenly you've given them opportunity to actually attain middle classhood, to learn a skill, to, make, to, to, to have a profession, to, to make money, to make themselves into something. And by the way, the Chinese never complain about how much they're being paid. You guys complain. We complain in the West because yes, to our middle-class comfy lives, that seems ridiculous. But that's because you've never lived in real poverty. Nobody in England has lived in real poverty the way the Chinese and the Africans and the Indonesians live. When you go, when you go to a place, and, and it's interesting, because take, take Korea. Korea is an interesting case study, right? You've got North Korea and South Korea. 50, 60, 70 years ago, South Korea was as poor as North Korea. They were both dirt poor. And then South Korea instituted some economic freedom. And it made it possible for people to go and work for a buck a day, for two bucks a day. And they developed skills, and they increased their productivity, and they started building more stuff. And capital flu came in and increased their productivity even more. And suddenly, and you go to Seoul today, and they're as rich as you are, but they, in, in 70 years they did, or 60 years, they did what you've done in, in hundreds of years. How did they do it? Because of the ability to slowly ratchet up. Now, if you demand that they skip and get to your standard of living like that, then they will stay poor forever. And that's what you're condemning them to. 
You're condemning them to eternal poverty. A kid who is getting a buck or two a day, his alternative is to die in the fields. You're make, giving him, doing him a favor by giving him the two bucks a day. And he's producing something. And he's learning a skill at the same time. And one day he'll run the factory. But if you, you demand that he gets paid full, he'll never have the job. He'll never have the, the, the factory. And he'll stay poor for the rest of his life. So yes, Dr. Brooke does not deny that wagers are low by middle class standards. But he points out that you have to put it in perspective. From the viewpoint of the people living in rural villages with no means of escaping poverty, that so-called low wage is a world of difference. It gives the workers practical skills and experience that can be applied to move up and attain better jobs and higher wages, the alternative to which is staying on the rural farms and starving to death. Even Tho points this out in her article, when she interviewed a lady named Yuan Yanling, who has worked three stints on, on iPhone assembly lines, quitting, quote, each time better paid or more fun jobs appeared. As of today, on the back of her experience and her connections with Foxconn workers, Miss Yuan has uh, landed a cosmetic sales job in a mall nearby iPhone City, no doubt a step up from the assembly lines. On the point about poor working conditions, Apple has personally taken responsibility on the issue, where it states that it has, quote, educa educated 12 million workers on their rights, ensured work weeks don't exceed 48 hours, and offered career and personal development courses, end quote. On that front, the company also reported that wages and working conditions at its contract manufacturers have improved significantly in the past five years. Lastly, while it will certainly be disastrous for many workers should Foxconn leave iPhone City, at least the workers will be in a much better position to find work. As Shi Pu, an economics professor in Hernan says, quote, Foxconn has helped train thousands, hundreds of thousands of Hernan's people. They can use those skills to go on to other jobs, end quote. Now to wrap up the point regarding the economic impact of the iPhone on its assembly line workers, it has been, to put it simply, nothing short of incredible. From building cities to developing busing local economies to providing opportunities to pull individuals out of poverty, the manufacturing story of the iPhone and Foxconn is a true testament to the magic of capitalism. And with that brings the end to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did preparing the material. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to drop me an email at dcordy at economicalricepodcast.com or post them on the podcast social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, or even Instagram. Again, if you want to support the Economical Rice podcast, you can help by sharing this episode or subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. Now, this has been your host, Danny, at the Economical Rice podcast. I hope you tune in again next week. We're over here, we serve the grains of capitalism. <laughs>